So this evening, I like to talk about equanimity, and equanimity is uh, the last and one of the seven factors of awakening. And so, this morning, I presented some phrases I suggested to use for the practice. Then on the board, I put uh, this paper with uh, some other phrases. So what I like to look first is at those phrases and then look at other aspects of equanimity. So the, the first uh, quote is basically the, the traditional phrases for uh, cultivating equanimity as part of the four Brahma-Vihara, the four qualities. All living beings are owners of their actions. All living beings have their actions as a refuge. Whatever action they perform for good or evil, to that they will fall heir. I don't know, personally, I don't find it very inspiring in terms of cultivating equanimity. I mean, you know, it's true. It's saying that, you know, basically it's talking about cause and effect, but my feeling is that it's also connected to this idea of uh, reincarnation. And I'm not totally sure what all this has to do with equanimity. I'm sure traditionally they would explain this very well. But unfortunately, I'm not convinced, so I won't go more about this. <laughs> but if anybody has, uh, wants to discuss this at the end, we could. Then there is a second version, which is more like a modern kind of uh, version. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. Again, this is getting closer to uh, talking directly about equanimity. But personally, I find it a little cold. Uh, but of course, it can be useful. Because I mean, basically, the first line, may we be undisturbed by the coming and going of events gives a little taste of what equanimity is about. But personally, I think, again, it's a little dangerous, because it's saying the aim is not to be disturbed. So it seems to imply that we can reach a state where we'll not be disturbed by anything, anytime. And that, I am not totally sure about. I have not, it doesn't seem to me that's what equanimity is necessarily about. And I think it's very dangerous if we think that's what we're aiming for, that I think is a little uh, problematic. Then I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. I mean, fair enough, fair enough, but. <laughs> I find it a bit cold myself, but it's true. I mean, it's true that at one level, uh, I cannot keep you from suffering. So I care for you and I have to accept. And basically, this is about acceptance, that I cannot necessarily change your conditions, even if I care for you. And I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. That, I think, is getting a little <laughs> direct, you know? If you made the good choices, you would be happy. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. So, I mean, some people find them useful. So, again, it's what basically works for you. I think that's the thing with words and language and any presentation. Does it speak to me or not? And so, some people find it useful and some people might find it less useful. And so personally, uh, what I found useful, as I thought about it over time, about what, what is this equanimity about? And it seems to me, 
what the equanimity is about is what I would call creative acceptance. That we kind of like really creatively accept what is going on. So it's not resignation, it's not passivity, but it's really in a way seeing clearly what is going on here. And to me, what that helps us to do, this creative acceptance, is helping us not to amplify or exaggerate. I think equanimity is very much about that. Helping us to amplify less, helping us to exaggerate less, by trying to be more, by in a way not doing this fast association. It's always like this, it will never change, etc., etc. And instead to see, okay, this has happened, I feel this way, it might be difficult, or I think that it might be obsessive, but generally I am not 24 hours a day in that state. Week in, week out. Yes, according to condition, you might be more likely in it. I know for myself, when um, my father died, I saw my father died, my brother died also. And so each time that there was his death, for about nine months to the year, I was very sensitive. And I would kind of very easily cry. And that's life. The equanimity is not saying you're not going to feel sadness or you're not going to feel anger of any of these things. As I said before, these are creative functioning. But what it can help us to do, equanimity, is possibly be able to be with the feeling of sadness, of the feeling of anger, in a different way, so that we might not so quickly, so intensely amplify or exaggerate. To me, that's very much, in a way, the function of equanimity. Because equanimity is really about trying to help us, as I said in the phrases I suggested, stability. It's really about can I find a place within myself where there is a little stability? And through that stability, I can be with the difficult feeling of sadness or anger or whatever, but I am not just sad. There is a wider context. But it doesn't mean that it's not going to be turbulent. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be intense. But it means that by not exaggerating and proliferating so much, then the intensity can go down. And that's what I saw over the nine months after each of these deaths. First, I would cry more often, and then over time, it was less. It doesn't mean I am not sad when I think of them, but at the same time, the sadness is together with the appreciation that they existed, that I met them, that I knew them in many different ways. So when I think of them, I don't think just it's sad. I, I connect to the whole experience of the time I was in their life, they were in my life, and the thing that they brought to the family and to us and things like that. So to see that, of course, Certain condition might lead to certain emotional or certain thought or whatever. I don't think equanimity, I know often, I mean, Stephen mentioned it in the Bodhicharya Avatara, be like a piece of wood. I think this is a metaphor, you know. I don't think it means that you, when once you leave the retreat, you're just going to be like that. <laughs> and then possibly if you have a little pleasant feeling tone, Unpleasant feeling tone. I mean, I don't think this is the idea. This is not life. Life is something, you know, if you look at the Sigalavada Sutta, which is a precept for the lay people, 
The Buddha says, you know, you need to earn money, and then he tells you what to do with the money. You need to be, you know, kind to your children. They need to be kind to you and to the wife and to the worker. So he's not saying, you know, everybody should be on top of a mountain like a piece of wood. You know, he's kind of saying, you know, we live in the world. And so I think we have to be careful what we mean by equanimity. So that is not that we're not going to feel. But possibly there's going to be more stability and balance so that we won't be, I would say, so overwhelmed by what's going on. And to me, that's one of the things I really kind of was touched by Master Kuzan, the reputed one who had three awakenings. And time to time he was asked to give a death ceremony for the 49 days you have different time you give uh, talks. And so often he would be asked people he knew, he appreciated. And so generally if it would really somebody he knew, he would kind of say, you know, there is no life, there is no death, da 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 da, thing like that. And then he would have a little cry, you know, ooh, they're dead, you know, and so he would have a few tears, and then there is no life, there is no death, you know, and what I found great was that he could have this discourse, Dharma discourse, then he could feel sad and have tears, and then they could stop, and then he could go back to his great Dharma discourse. To me, that's what was impressive, that actually he could have it, and he could stop, so that he was not a piece of wood. He was a human being, caring for others. Another thing that he used to do, which I, after a while I wondered, you know, what's going on? Because sometimes when he gave special talk to a little group of lay people, at some point he would cry. And I thought, what is this about? So finally I kind of, realize this was about the gratitude towards your parents. And he would cry when he talked about the gratitude we need to have for our mother when you leave home and she's on the threshold and she cries when she sees you going away to make your life. And so what he was showing was that, you know, he felt he had empathy for the sadness, the pain of her mother when she saw him going off. And I found that so beautiful. And then, you know, he would stop and go to the ninth ones and then the tenth ones. And so he could have great feeling. But he was not overwhelmed by them. He had them, and then they passed, and he had something else. I mean, I can remember once walking in the temple and suddenly I saw him looking quite decided, like he was looking for somebody, and he had a stick. And I thought, who is he looking for? And he said to me, have you seen my attendant? I said, no. Ah, and then I see him going further. So obviously the attendant must have done something, and now, but the attendant must have fleed. So now he was looking for him. So it was very funny. So he was not saying it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, you know, continue to break the vases or whatever he might have done or burn the right. I had no idea what the attendant did. But he was looking for him in a decided manner. So in a way, with this equanimity, I think another thing to look at is we have to be careful of, that's why I don't use the word, I don't know if you have not me use it, is detachment. I think this is a dreadful word. I never use it. Because to me it makes me feel of, think of a semi-detached house in England. You know? and I I don't know, detachment. Detachment seems to mean I am detached, I am floating above, I am uninvolved. As somebody was saying, I am not responsible because there is no self. So why should I be involved or responsible? I think this is very suspicious. <laughs> and instead, I think the equanimity is being 
in our life in a stable, open, creative way. And one of the examples that came to mind is in Korea, you generally eat three times rice, veggies, and fermented cabbage. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, that's what you eat. And then once a month, or once every three months, you might have mandu. And then the whole temple, you have hundreds of people kind of making this Korean temple ravioli, which then you go into steam. And they're really amazing. So, you know, you have hundreds of people need to make hundreds of these things. So we spend the whole morning, the master is there too making them. And you have to make the, the pastry, and you have to make the filling, and then you have to put the filling in the pastry, and then you have to cook them. And so, you know, 100 people doing this for, generally it was from 8 to 11, three hours. And so we're all doing it, and you know, yes, yeah, do this, let's do that, let's do that. And then you got about, if you were lucky, five, and basically you ate them in a minute. <laughs> and to me, I thought this is a wonderful, you know, you do all this hard work for having that one minute of exquisite taste. And then it's finished for possibly the next year, or maybe the three months after. So it's very special in a way. But I thought it was kind of exquisite in the fact that it requires so much work, and the enjoyment was so short. But because the enjoyment was so short, did not mean that you would not do it. That's what I loved about it. Because generally we think, well, only, you know, if I'm going to have a long enjoyment, am I going to do something for three hours? But I really love that, all that effort. And then just that brief exquisiteness. And then it was gone. And to me, that's also equanimity. That's also part of this kind of creatively accepting, engaging with life. And so connected to that, because personally I think equanimity is very much connected with this phrase, which is yata bhutam nyanya dasana. And if you want to see how it's written, I have put it on the board. Because there is lots of Y and H and thing in that. And I put the, the short version in terms I have not put all the diacritic and all the A and thing, but the kind of the, the simple modern version of Yata Bhutam Nyanya Dasana. And so generally this whole compound, you hear it all the time, even though you don't know this formulation, possibly. And actually, generally we hear it as, which often is connected to equanimity, be with things as they are. Have you heard this word before? Have you heard this sentence before? Be with things as they are. So it gives you the impression that either they are the way things are and I must find it. That's maybe more the metaphysical view. Or I must not do anything and just be with whatever, which would give the impression Okay, this is equanimity. Whatever happened, just be with it. But actually, yatam bhutam yanya dasana doesn't say that. It doesn't say be with things as they are. It says, see and know things as they come to be. See and know things as they arise. And to me, that's why I talk about creative acceptance. Or oh, it's nearly better to see, instead of accept things as they arise, see and know things as they arise. And I think actually equanimity comes a lot from attention and dharma vichaya, which are the first two I talked at the beginning. Attention 
and investigation. And it's through attention and investigation, and when we really see and know how things arise, that then there can be equanimity. Because it goes back to this tendency we have to permanentize, for example. To something happen, it's always like this. We cause ourselves so much pain with that. When actually, the Buddha is saying, seeing no things as they arise, meaning as they are impermanent. They're caused by conditions. So in a way, it's really about the equanimity is actually by seeing what's going on, then equanimity arises, because we, again, less likely to go into amplification, to go into exaggeration, which then often leads us to be overwhelmed. And so then the thing is, that's why when we do the meditation, it's really about like doing, like, for example, this uh, eight-day retreat is actually seeing every day things change, things come, things go, that it be with the thought, that it be with this, with that. And so for equanimity is actually flowing, being with that. Often there is this, um, in terms of awakening, one of the image is to be like water. And what is interesting with water is that it adapts to whatever receptor, receptacle you put it in. It also adapts to high and low. And so in a way, this idea of fluidity, to me, often equanimity, we have the impression that, you know, stasis, like the stone, I don't move. But then if I don't move, what about this life which is flowing around me? So idea is more to flow, to encounter life. And so, but what is interesting with this um, equanimity which see and know things as they arise, is that often people have this impression is something which is dry. But personally, I think equanimity actually is warm, because I think it's from this seeing and knowing that compassion arises. If you feel you are stuck, or other people are stuck, you're not going to easily give yourself or others the benefit of the doubt. But if you really know, if you really know <coughs> impermanence, then one of the things you know is that there is the potential for change. And that's why yesterday I talked about sudden, sudden awakening. And sudden awakening is very much about that, that actually we never know. We never know when this creative potential is going to burst forth. We never know when there is going to be a breakthrough. We never know when we're going to let go. I mean, for many, many years, I had, a, I would say, a very painful survival habit. Very painful. And the, I got it very early on, when I was a young child. And any time anybody would hurt me, I would freeze them. So when I was younger, it would spend days. Somebody did something to me, I would not look at them, I would not speak to them, I would not, I would consider like they were not there. And then I did meditation, so the timing got a little better. You know, instead of maybe a week, five days, three days. But still I did it, even though I did meditation for quite a while. And then one day, and you might think, why then? And to me, this is what I think we are doing here. We are cultivating, developing the power 
of that creative moment, which would, could nearly say happen on its own. It's not something that you intend. It's something which happened. Because at that moment, there is a deep grasping. So that day, that morning, the day before, somebody did something which hurt me. And so I go to the kitchen, and she is there. And I nearly feel the, the freezing coming up. But instead, something comes up which says, could you do something else? And then there is this fear. How can I do something else? I have not done something else for the last 35 years. Am I going to start now? And that's when I realize why we don't change often. Is it we prefer the pain of the known than the non-pain of the unknown. But there was enough power, so I went beyond. I turned to the person, I looked at her, I smiled at her, and there was this incredible ease. And I thought, why did not I do it before? <laughs> But what was the most striking was that after that, I could never do it again out of compassion. Because then I really saw and knew what I was doing. Up to that point, I only saw I am protecting myself. At that moment, I saw how painful it must have been for these people to be ignored, negated in that way. And I could suddenly really experience the pain that could cause. And so after that, I never did it again because of compassion. I could not do it. So now, if somebody is hurtful for some reason, then creative engagement. How can I handle this? What can I do, etc., etc. And so, to me, the seeing and knowing, of course, we can help ourselves to see and know. Or it's kind of like nearly revealed through the power that we cultivate over time. And so, here, I want to, to look, possibly to look a little in more kind of the public sphere to see how there are many different ways for those moments. This moment where we move through the seeing and knowing to equanimity. So that suddenly something shifts and then we more equanimous and we have more power in the situation. And one of the things is, if you make repeated mistake, you make it once, you make it second time, you make it third time. That's one of the things the Buddha says. Sometimes if you have some difficult thought, can you know where it's going to, you, to lead you to? And so in a way to see, oh, do I want to go there? And the equanimity to me is of coming back to stability and equilibrium. And in the book of um, Anthony Kedis from the Red or Chili Pepper, at the end, there is this amazing description of a moment like that. A man who for a lot of his life has been addicted to a lot of things for many different reasons. And he goes through one, uh, therapeutic uh, thing, second, and third. Third, he goes back home, he's fine for a few, some time. And then suddenly one day, one weekend, he has a urge, takes his backpack, goes out of the door, and he stops. And in that moment, he sees and knows what's going to happen. He has this vision of him scoring, doing this, doing that, doing that, doing that, and ending in not such a good place. 
And also the thing is very strong. He turned back, inside, dropped the bag, closed the door. And that's it. And so a moment like that, you see, I think often we have the idea, well, you know, I try once, I try twice, but you don't know. Sometimes you have to try many times until finally one day, I am not going there. So you see and know in that moment that you don't need to do this. But it takes time to get to that point. Or sometimes, I think, often when we think of the practice, when we think of equanimity, stability and equilibrium, we often think it's just a, a personal thing. I think this is something we have to be really careful about, that this is very individual, that it's all about me and it's just on me. When actually I am not so sure I mean, the fact is all of you came to this retreat. Would you have come if it was just you, the one retreatant on this retreat? Possibly, I don't know. I mean, it's because we are all here together that in a way it supports what we are doing here, even if not all of you are here all the time together. The fact that we all here together, that we all respect the silence, respect the place, that creates support. And actually, with that support, there is more equanimity. And even if you have the impression, I am, as Stephen said, I am the worst meditator and everybody seems to be so floating on their cushion. Even if they're floating, they look like they're floating on their cushion, but they're really not, the fact that they look is like, oh yeah, this is possible. I can try it. And so to really see that it's also equanimity is not just, it's my only responsibility to be equanimous, regardless of the circumstances. And recently I saw this amazing uh, video. It was a YouTube video of um, rudimentals for waiting all night. It's a song and it's a band in the UK. And what I like about the band rudimentally is that they don't think they're very interesting, so they decide to do the video about something else with the music behind. And so they found this fellow, Kurt Yeager, who is a guy who was with a BMX bike, doing all kind of somersault and things like that. And he has an accident, terrible accident. And so the video is about that, recreating his accident, his hospital. And the, I mean, later I kind of look what he was saying about the story and he said, you know, I was in hospital nine months, he was broken everywhere, it was terrible, they had to cut off his leg and things like that. And he was really in despair. He thought, I can't do this. I, I really can't do this. This is too painful. This is, it was really, really painful. But every day, his family, his friend were there saying to me, we are here for you. We are here for you. And actually, he said, the only reason I survived and continues was because of them. And in a way, they gave him equanimity in his situation. I can't do this. And then he recovered, and now he's back to BMX and doing his thing, and he's an actor too. But to me, I think with equanimity, we have to be careful of thinking it's just on me. I need to be equanimous. I think we have this strange idea about equanimity, when actually many different things, conditions, contribute to equanimity. And then the last thing I wanted to speak about, which I would connect to equanimity, is renunciation. Because I think renunciation is the same. Uh, you hear the word, because this is one of the things that the Buddha says, one of the definitions 
for the appropriate thought or appropriate intention. It's a thought which is characterized by harmlessness, non-in-will, and renunciation. And so, personally, I connect renunciation to equanimity. Because actually, what is interesting, what is in a way stops us from stability? What is it that, in a way, troubles us in terms of balance? And often it's a thirst. But why the thirst? Often the thirst is because of the exaggeration, the amplification. And that's why it's wonderful, One, a practice you can do, which I would recommend to anybody, is when you go in a large shopping center of whatever they sell, computers, iPhone 403, uh, whatever, clothes, books, cameras, iOS, number 25, whatever. And look, you know, you kind of pass in front of the shop window and you see something and it's like, mm. and it's like there is this kind of like halo around it. And it's like, ooh, if I had this, I would be happy. And so it's interesting because like there is this movement of, I want this. I have to have this. And a lot of it actually, because you get it, you get the iOS, whatnot, you get the iPhone, you get the dress, you get the book, you get the deal. And it's nice, but does it totally change your life forever after? Possibly not. Possibly not. And I had this wonderful experience when I was in Korea as a nun. I was a foreign nun. There were not many Zen, and generally people got excited. And this time I was in a taxi, and I was in the back. He was in the front, Korean taxi man, and he was very excited. Oh, you are a Western nun. Wow, you know, a little dangerous, but oh, what a renunciation. What a renunciation. You're not smoking, you're not drinking, you're not eating meat, you don't have sex, you can't go out at night, you can't have children. What a renunciation. So my halo was getting you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, wow. And the final phrase, I could never do it. So I got to the place where I wanted to go, finally. And I was sitting there, and personally, I did not feel I had that huge halo. Because everything he said, I was like, I don't want to smoke, I don't want to drink, I don't want to go out at night, I don't want this, I don't want that. So he was praising me for something actually I did not want to do anyway. And so often we have the feeling renunciation is stopping something you want. But possibly I think renunciation is when the halo effect goes. So it doesn't mean you cannot have the iPhone or the dress or whatever, but that you don't imbue it with all kinds of things. I would say you have an equanimous relationship to it. And so to see that if we, with the halo effect, I think that can really actually make us miss a lot of life around us. Because we think the thing here is fantastic and the thing here, but that one, you know? And I remember, I mean, Korea is beautiful. I mean, we went there in October with Stephen. We went on a pilgrimage with a little group, and it was fantastic. We went to these amazing places. 
And it was really, really special. It's beautiful. If you're interested, you can see it on my Facebook page. And, but when I came back from Korea, I came, left Korea in 1985. And then from Korea, deep in the beautiful mountain, I want to stay in an amazing place near Totnes, Sharpham House. I mean, if you talk about paradise, Sharpham House is very beautiful, on the river Dart, all green and everything. But the first year I was in this amazing place in Devon, I would walk in the countryside and I would say, not bad, <laughs> but it's not like in Korea. And it was kind of like, you know, the halo effect of there stopped me from seeing the beauty of here with equanimity. And then one day I was walking, beautiful day, and finally I thought, hmm, this is not bad at all. <laughs> and then the halo went down there, and there it was just, oh, yeah. So in a way, it's to see equanimity is not glazing on things, but is seeing them more clearly. See and know things as they arise. Beautiful things, unbeautiful things. You have to deal with them both, but it helps us to deal with it in a clearer way. But also with that stability, that balance, I think that's also what is important. So if there is no... Yes, okay. Okay, it's a weird question. <laughs> um, I've been, since I began meditating, my way of thinking has become more visual. And I started noticing that I link colours with different Dharma concepts. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, <laughs> do you, would you associate any colours with the Brahma Baharas? You see, personally, you are talking to somebody who is not very visual. Not so personally, I don't. But I'm sure if you Google it, you might find somebody who does. Or you could invent it. You could invent it your own schema. Well, I have my ideas. I was interested to know if you had some. That's that's fine. No, no, I don't. I don't. But you, you, you could uh, kind of you know little blog on it. Share it on Facebook. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a more practical question. Um, of all these methods that you told us this, this week, when I come back uh, home, I'll probably only have 20 minutes a day or 40 minutes. How do I choose from all these methods? You know, instead of... Okay, so what I think is important, generally, is to have a main method. Like one thing you can do easily, it speaks to you, you're not fighting with it, you do it more or less easily. And that's what you do most of the time. And then at time, if you want to explore a little questioning, you can do that. If you want to explore a little that, you can do that. That's generally the way I would recommend. That's one thing. Another thing I would say is that if you have practiced for a little while, then I would just trust your attention. Like, of course, you can decide, oh, this week, I am going to do loving kindness a whole week, or I'm going to do mindfulness of breathing. But personally, what I do is I just sit there and whatever my attention does, because I think when you are in the doing of the, when you talk about it, you have to say, there is it, there is that, there is that. But personally, what I found myself doing is generally I do, generally the question will happen anyway, but with the question, I might have a bit of breath, or with the question, I might have a bit of uh, listening, which anchors it. And that's what I do. 
but without kind of saying, I must do this now. So I would trust over time where the attention goes. So you could start with the breath, stay with it, or you could open to sound. Or you can start with the breath and go to the body. Sometimes there are some people who recommend to do 10 minutes of loving kindness every evening. So again, it's for one to see. So I think, personally, I would not make it too didactic. You know, like thinking that one method, you know, I must do just one method, or I must do it this way. Or, but just to, to see what works for you without making it complicated. Because I indicated these different things because they have a slightly different effect. Like the breath in daily life I would use as a kind of mean to stabilize. The sound, often I would use it as a mean to open. The body as a mean to ground. The loving kindness as a mean if I have some resentment as a mean to kind of, you know, slightly soften it. If, I, if one feels a little disturbed, equanimity can be good. If you feel a little stuck, sometimes the questioning can bring some brightness. So I think in terms of the practice, you don't need to do all of them all the time. Just whatever works. But what is interesting is in terms of applying the practice, what I call the tool of awareness, in daily life. And then according to the condition, you might use more one than the other. And tomorrow I will bring uh, mudita, uh, appreciative joy. And that I think can help when we have this kind of like, this tightness, this comparing mind. The feeling tone I would recommend in daily life as much as we can. But not necessarily when you sit, because when you sit, most of the time, not much happens. But in daily life is really the place to be aware of feeling tone. Then it gets really, kind of, you can really see them. So I think there is what I would call the formal practice on your cushion or on a chair. And then there is a practice in daily life as you go about your day and how you might bring the tool of awareness or the factor of awakening. You know, like sometimes if something is a little difficult or shocking or whatever, then generally I will bring the, often I will bring the equanimity, opacity, the calm. All the time if I feel a little confused, Dhamma what is going on here? So to see that actually, yes, there is this tool of awareness, but you also have the different factor of awakening which could come in in the daily life. Yes?
you see, the thing is that it's not so much that you need to talk about equanimity. You need, if you can, to be equanimous. So that, so, so the tone of voice, the reassurance, the I am there, I think that's in a way what you do. If somebody phones you, she needs to know somebody is there. So I think it's not so much telling her you could do this, you could do that. I think often it's just, okay. And then kind of, you know, look at the option or whatever that can help the person to be a little less anxious. So that what you need to do, I think what we need to do a lot of the time is to be calm. To be calm, then to be a little creative if we want, to see what is it I could talk about here which kind of would bring it down. Like recently I had somebody phone me because she was really in a bad state. And we talked for 40 minutes, an hour, and I could see it was going, go, it was good in so, so far I could listen to her, see her, be there for her. But that the more we talk, the more she would go down in it. So after about 40 minutes, I said, now you need to do something creative. You need to do something different. We're going around, it's not. And then suddenly she, as soon as I said that, oh yeah, I could do a little this, I could do a little that. Then I put the phone down, and then she went to do that. And then the next day she was better. So I think it's also knowing if I speak with the person, is it helping it? to come up a little bit, or to calm, or is it seemingly going down in some way? What is it that could shift? What is it that could help with the shift? So that, I think, is, in a way, all our creative capacity have to come in here. But yeah, we cannot tell them, be like this, be like that. That's really yeah. does not work. <laughs> so and then we have to finish for the walking. Thank <laughs> you.